Mark chapter number 6. This is a familiar passage of Scripture, but the uh, Lord laid a thought on my heart this evening. And I want to share it with you. Mark chapter number 6, and I'd like to be in reading at verse 31. Mark chapter 6, verse number 31. The Bible says, And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all the cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about, and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred pennyworth of bread, and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. Let's stop and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in this place. I ask that you take your word tonight. Lord, just as you did this bread and, and, and fishes so many years ago, that you'd break it before us tonight. Feed us, Lord, upon your word. Instruct us. Give us encouragement tonight, Lord. And I pray that you'd speak directly and explicitly to our lives. We've come tonight not just to fulfill a duty or to uh, check off a box on our week, but, Lord, we've come tonight because we need you, Lord. We need to hear from you. So I pray that you'd speak to us tonight. I pray that we'd be open and receptive to the truth of it. And I pray that you'd accomplish in us a work that would bring you much glory. Lord, I love you, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter number 6 contains probably one of the more familiar passages of Scripture uh, and stories of the life of the earthly ministry of our Savior. You were probably taught, if you grew up in Sunday school, even from a young age, about the feeding of the 5,000. I've often thought to myself how we sort of reimagine Scripture. I'll tell you this, and I encourage our Sunday school teachers in this tonight. Sunday school teachers have a large bearing on how people perceive and understand the context of Scripture. Uh, There's many things that you were taught as a young child, and a certain picture was painted for you by a Sunday school teacher. And that has become galvanized and imprinted upon your mind. And now when you read Scripture, you just sort of see it that way. And when we approach this passage... I'll tell you, we often approach this passage and we see it as an encouraging passage. We see it as a hopeful passage. We see it as a comforting passage. We see it as a passage where we are reminded of the Lord's ability to meet our needs. And and we often think about this young lad that comes and surrenders his lunch to the Lord and how God performs this great precious miracle. 
And if you're not careful, you'll begin to view this passage as though it was an easy, simple, straightforward day in the life of the Lord and his disciples. But when you begin to read the context of it, you begin to understand that what we have come to see as this beautiful, idyllic miracle performed in this wonderful, lush uh, pasture field was actually in many ways one of the most stressful and chaotic and arduous and difficult days in the ministry of the Lord and in the life of his disciples as they were serving him. When we read it, it, it's not a time when everybody's just sort of like the old idyllic picture of dinner on the grounds. Everybody's sitting around enjoying fried chicken and potato salad and throwing frisbees. Instead, it's this seething mass of humanity that is all hungry and demanding and needy. And you have the disciples and they're not walking along whistling a tune, rejoicing in the goodness and opportunity to serve the Lord. But rather they are stressed, they are stretched thin, they are exhausted, and they in no way, shape, fashion or form are excited about being here. You can hear it in the conversation that they have with the Lord. And Philip, if we're just, to, I mean, let's just call it what it is. He gets a little smart aleck with the Lord in this passage. The Lord says, well, feed him, Philip. And he says, well, what, are we going to go buy 200 penny worth of bread and feed him? Now, I don't know if that's a lot or a little, but I know it wasn't what they needed. <laughs> because he's saying it's impossible. There's no way. And when I read this passage of Scripture... I gain a lot of encouragement because I don't have a lot of those idyllic days where you're whistling a tune. But I have a lot of these days where you're stretched out, stressed, spread too thin, and still looking for God to do something in your life. See, when I read this passage, I notice three things about the state of mind the disciples were in. Notice verse 31 with me. The Bible says this, that the Lord said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. Let me say, number one tonight, they were overwhelmed by the work that they were doing. I mean, they are stretched beyond their capability. So much so that the Lord says, you better come apart. Or as one old preacher used to say, if you don't come apart, you're going to come apart. And he calls them to this place of seclusion and of rest and of refreshment because they are overwhelmed by the problems of their life. They're not in a good frame of mind. They're not feeling strong. They're not feeling vigorous. They're not feeling ready for the challenges. In fact, they feel spread too thin and getting ready to snap. It says this, the reason why they were experiencing this, the end of verse 31, it says, for there were many coming and going. And they had no leisure so much as to eat. Let me say, not only were they overwhelmed, but they were overcome by their problems. This is not a frailty or feebleness on their part. I mean, they were serving God so committedly and so intently that they didn't even have time to sit down and eat a meal. They were literally starving themselves so that they could serve the Lord and be used of Him. Their problems were not just one or two big problems. Can I say this? Most of us are like this in life. Most of us can handle one or two big problems better than we can a thousand small problems. If we can just focus our attention and bring that thing to God and ask Him to work in that matter and find some semblance of peace, we can handle it. But it's that death by a thousand cuts that gets to us. 
And certainly the disciples are feeling this. Everywhere they turn, there's somebody grabbing on them, somebody that needs something, somebody that's asking for something. And these are not small problems, mind you, that they are facing in those people's lives. I mean, people are coming to them with with devil-possessed children, with dying loved ones, with broken homes, with deep and desperate needs. They're beset about by the blind and the maimed and the halt, the lepers and the broken and the dying. And everywhere they look, they are overcome by the problems of life. We oftentimes think when we've got a lot of problems that the problems we've got must not be bad problems. I remember hearing years ago, and I don't know why this always stuck with me, it just always had in my mind, I was talking to a fella and uh, he, I, I was getting ready to say something or he was getting ready to say something to me and he stopped and he said, well I forgot what I was going to say. And uh, I looked at him and I said, well it must not have been that important. You know people say that sometimes. And he looked at me and said, no preacher I've forgotten lots of important things. And when we read this passage of Scripture, we kind of imagine to ourselves that there is always this sort of symbiotic balance to the problems in life. But just because you've got a bunch of problems, that don't even mean they're not big problems. I mean, they're facing big problems, and not just one and not just two, but they're surrounded on every hand by problems. They're overwhelmed. They're exhausted. They're overcome. They're beset about by their problems. But then look at verse 32. The Bible says they departed into a desert place by ship privately. They thought it was because verse 33 says the people saw them departing and many knew him and ran a foot thither out of all cities. And I like this phrase out went them and came together unto him. So, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying this. They were overwhelmed by their problems. They were discouraged, distraught, exhausted. They were overcome by their problems. It wasn't just one or two, but they were beset about on every side by the problems they were facing. But then they were overrun by their problems. When they sought to get away and get some respite and get some help and get some encouragement, rather than getting away from their problems, their problems cut them off down the pass and met them where they were going. I tell you, you're going to have problems in life sometimes you can't get away from. Uh, You're going to have problems. I mean, listen, your problems know shortcuts that you don't know. And as sure as we think we can run away from it and escape it and get away from it, very often those problems will be sitting there waiting on us when we get there. I mean, think about this in their life. They get it where they say, I'm just done with all of it. The Lord give us permission. We're taking a vacation. I don't guess they went fishing because fishing wasn't a vacation for them. But they said, that's it. We're getting away. We're going hog hunting. We're getting out. And, and and by the time they get to the hunt house, by the time they climb in the tree stand, they are beset about by the exact people they were trying to get away from. We would say this, that they are not in a good way. Sometimes in life, you're not going to be in a good way. You know what I mean. Discouraged man, stressed, heart in the wrong place, mind in the wrong place. And sometimes we think in that situation that the Lord will always step back and and sort of just 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 surround us with feather pillows and and with comfort and with space and give us the room that we need but in fact that's not what happened in this passage I want to preach to you on this thought tonight overwhelmed overcome and overrun and yet still God used them can I tell you you ain't only going to be used when you're feeling good God will use you in your life even when you're not doing good. You, God ain't just going to use you when you feel, I mean, vigorous and kicking and ready to go and like you can take on the world. But often the greatest works that God does in our life, 
He does not when we feel full of strength, but we, when we feel empty of strength. It's not just times when we feel our mind set at ease, but times when our mind is agitated. It's not just times when things are simple, but it's times when they are uh, deeply and increasingly complicated. And in the disciples' lives, we read this passage and think, oh, what a, what a wonderful day that must have been. They would have probably hit you in the mouth if you said that to them. By the time they got to the bed and collapsed that evening, exhausted and stressed, and mine still running a million miles an hour and unable to sleep, they probably didn't feel like great successes that day. But you and I read this passage and we see what God did through it. And oftentimes, by the time you hit the bed at night, you won't feel like God's done much with your day. But aren't you glad you don't get to write that story? God gets to write that story. I want you to notice what it'll take in those moments in life. And I have just about four or five simple thoughts here this evening, and then we'll go to the house. Notice what it takes for God to use us in those circumstances. I will tell you, you can get in those circumstances and be unusable by God. But you can also get in those circumstances and be eminently usable by God. And what's the distinction between the two? Because you're not going to feel good in that situation no matter what. So what is it that it'll take for God to use you? Well, notice what verse 34 says. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people. And I like this. Was moved with compassion toward them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Won't you notice number one with me tonight what they saw when they looked at the Savior. And let me just use this word. When they looked at him, they saw compassion. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. And if you'll be honest, I bet you'll agree with me about this. You and I probably wouldn't have had a good attitude when Jesus reacted that way. You, we would have probably said, now, Lord, you've asked us to come here and rest. You've asked us to come here and recharge and refresh. And, Lord, we're doing our best to do this. And if you go out and teach them people and keep them people here, we're going to have to do something to feed them. We're going to have to take care of them. Lord, we're exhausted. We don't have anything left in the tank. God, just turn them away and give us some rest and give us some relief. But when they looked at the Savior, what they saw, who, by the way, was just as weary as they were, was just as exhausted as they were, uh, was just as, as, as frayed as they were, as they saw that even in the midst of that state, he still strived and accomplished the having of compassion towards those around him. You know, a lot of times why God can't use us in those situations, it's not that we're shaken apart, it's that we shut down. It's not that we're stretched too thin. It's that we just shut the window on the whole thing and say, I'm done and I'm not even going to be usable anymore. If that's your attitude, God won't use you. But if you'll endeavor in those moments to say, feeble as I may be, broken as I may be, helpless as I may be, God, I'm still yours to use and allow your heart to be moved at the need of those around you. You'd be amazed. There's times God can use you more especially in that condition than he could if you felt recharged, refreshed, and encouraged. I believe a sovereign God could have had those people show up at any time. But he allowed and permitted them to show up in this moment 
Because God could in a meaningful way communicate something to the lives of the disciples and perform a miracle in the lives of those people. And one of the things that they needed to see in Jesus was even when he was exhausted, even when he was what was absolutely stretched thin, even when he was weary, he did not shut himself off from being used by the Father, but rather he looked for opportunities around him. And even when those that were the very root of his exhaustion came around, he was still moved with compassion we often our problem is not that we're that we're discouraged or disheartened or exhausted our problem is we're unmovable and when we're unmovable god can't use us we've got to be movable by that i mean we've got to be open to god working in our heart and in our life if we say well i'm done i'm i'm shutting down i'm giving out i'm quitting god won't use us by the way we don't have to do that we can say, Lord, I'm weary, and if you're going to use me, you'll have to give me strength. God, I'm, I'm frustrated, and if you're going to use me, you'll have to sweeten my spirit. God, I'm stretched thin, and if you're going to, if you're going to use me, then you're going to have to bind me back up together. But the moment we say, no, I'm not going to be used of God because of the things I've experienced, I have the right to refuse God, then mark her down, God will not be able to use us. I, I, I see what they saw. And, and, and the word compassion comes to my mind. But then look at verse 35. The Bible says this. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. I'm just going to pause there and say it's funny how perspectives change with attitudes. The Holy Ghost later on says, Sit them down in the green grass. But the disciples said it's a desert place. And you say, preacher, which is true? Well, I think they're probably both true to a degree. I think there was green grass or the Holy Ghost wouldn't have said there was. But I think when you want to see a desert in a pasture field, you can. When you want to decide it's a barren place, even if it is a bountiful place, you can. And they said, this is a desert place. And now the time is far past. That's another interesting statement. He says, the time's done. It's past. It's too late. Jesus says, set them down. I'm going to feed them. We'll say, well, Lord, it's it's too late. You can't work. Let God decide that. They say this, send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages. Doesn't sound like a desert place, does it? And buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat. And they said unto, they say unto him, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? Another place in the New Testament, the Bible emphasizes the fact that when the Lord asked this question, he knew what he would do. He already knew he was going to perform this miracle before he ever asked this question. You've often heard me say this, but I'll uh, just restate it tonight. The Lord only asks rhetorical questions. God can only ask questions that are rhetorical because he's omniscient. He's never lacking in knowledge. So every question that God's ever asked has always been rhetorical. Now, what's a rhetorical question? It's a question that is asked for the purpose of illuminating either the person being asked or the people that are overhearing the conversation. And here the Lord looks at Philip and says, give ye them to eat. He looks at him and says, go and provide for them. And Philip answers back, we have nothing. The Bible reminds us that that was the very reason for which the Lord Ask this question. That's the very reason for which he gave this command. Let me say it this way. We see not only what they saw, it was compassion, but we also see what they said 
they made a confession. And their confession was this, real simple. You ready? We ain't got it. We ain't got it. The Lord says, give to them. They say, we ain't got it. And the Lord looks at them and says, now you're beginning to understand. See, the fact of the matter is, we think that for God to use us, we have to, ooh, boy, let me say this just right, or, or something approximating correct at least. We think for God to use us that we have to have a certain level in our ability and our status. We think that for God to use us, we have to be in a certain right frame of mind. Now, I want you to understand, bitterness excludes us from being used of God. Carnality excludes us from being used of God. We can't walk in sin and be used of God. But never in my Bible do I see where weakness excludes or precludes us from being used of God. Feebleness makes us to where we can't. I never find that anywhere. In fact, the Bible tells me in the New Testament, God hath chosen the weak things of this world. Things that are feeble, expressly the base things, the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. And the truth is, it's a lie of our flesh that is our feebleness that keeps us from being used of God. Because the fact of the matter is, it's not our feebleness, it's our pride that keeps us from being used of God. And in this moment of discouragement and disheartenment, what they needed more than anything was just to get honest with the Lord and acknowledge and admit that they did not have the means for the miracle. We struggle because we won't admit we don't have the means for the miracle. But in your life, if God's going to use you in these moments, then you've got to be honest enough with him to admit and acknowledge that it's not within you to be used of him or to accomplish great things. It's God that has to do it. Why would that offend us except it would offend our pride? Knowing that we are but but flesh, knowing our frame that it's but dust, why would it offend us except that our pride has convinced us that it was us all along when that was never the case? They had to confess that they did not have the means or the ability. Look at verse 38 with me. The Bible says this. He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. Now, the other gospel writers give us a little bit more background on what takes place here, how that this lad comes to the Lord and offers this meal, and it's given unto the Lord, surrendered unto the Lord. And there's a beautiful truth there about preeminence, and I don't think that lad gave Jesus his lunch because he thought he was going to break it and feed 5,000. I believe that lad gave Jesus his lunch because he said, if, if anybody goes hungry today, it shouldn't be Jesus. And there's a lot to be said about giving our life to Christ and, and wanting Him to have the best and wanting Him to have the most and, and looking at it. No, nobody does great things for God by setting out to do great things for God. People do great things for God by believing that God is worthy of them, their entirety, putting themselves at His disposal. But I want you to stop and think about the disciples in this moment. At some point, the custody of that meal changed hands. And now if God is going to do something, they're going to have to take the only resources they have to meet and face the problems that they are facing and take them out of their hands and put them in the Lord's hands. I would say it this way. I want you to notice what they surrendered. They had only one little bit, one little meager portion, one morsel that could have done something about the hunger that day. And for it to be used of God, it had to leave their hands and be put into his hands. In other words, in your weakness and frailty and feebleness, 
for God to use you. You have to acknowledge and confess your inadequacy, your insufficiency, your inability. But then you have to take all that you are and simply place it in his hands and allow him to distribute it as he sees fit. I'm going to use the word commitment here. They had to commit it to his care. They had to surrender it to his custody. And once they did, what did Jesus do? He took it and he broke it and he multiplied it. See, the fact of the matter is, and I understand the Lord could have done anything that he chose in that moment. I understand that that every every bit of, of matter, that every every atom that's ever existed has existed by the express permission of God and by the authority and power of his word. By, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. I understand that. And he would have had no trouble if he had wanted fish. He could have commanded the fish to sprout legs and walk out of the Sea of Galilee and up onto the dinner plate. He, he, he could have done that if he had chosen to, but he didn't. He instead chose to use the meal of this little lad. And that then begs this question. Could anything have been done if they wouldn't have given him the fish and the bread? See, the fact of the matter is they could have walked away with no miracle that day if they had been unwilling to take what meager resource and ability they had and put it into the hands of the Lord. It could have been just a sad testimony of a bad day. Instead, it was a miraculous day, an amazing day. And what it took was them taking what they had and saying, Now, Lord, this isn't enough in my hands, but I'm going to trust that it's enough in your hands. We take our own strength and ability facing the problems that we experience, and we grow disheartened because we say, I'm not enough. But that's no barrier to God. We say, well, I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the resources. I don't have the maturity. I'm not enough. And the right answer is not to say, oh, yes, you are. You're beautiful and wonderful and unique and spectacular. That's what secular humanism does. Just lies to humanity about something we can all see. But instead, the Bible says, you know, that's true about you. But it's not true about him. It's true about you. But that's no limitation or barrier or boundary or or hindrance to God. And in fact, the only way it'll stay that way is if you keep it in your hands instead of putting it in his hands. See, if they were going to be used of God in that moment, they had to surrender to him. And can I let me just give you some real, real plain illustrations of how that might translate to your life and mine day by day. Go ahead and take what shred of sanity you got left and put it in his hands. Take what modicum of strength you got left and put it in his hands. I mean, listen, take take what little bit of grace and, and attitude and, and disposition you got left and put it in his hands and say, now, Lord, I'm yours and I do want to be used of you. And I, I can't change all this, but I can put myself in your hands and trust you. I see what they surrendered. Look with me at verse thirty nine. The Bible says this. He commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by five hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed them and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. Now, here's what I want you to pick up on in verse 39. He commanded them. Here's what I want you to pick up in verse number 40. He gave them to his disciples to set before them. 
So what are you getting at, preacher? I want you to notice not just what they saw and what they said and what they surrendered, but I want you to notice how they served. Let me use this word, compliance. It took obedience. It took obedience. I'll tell you something that God can't overcome in using a person's life is disobedience. Disobedience has to be dealt with and and rectified before God can use a person's life. But God is not going to change his plans to accommodate your willfulness. You're going to have to submit your will to his for him to be able to use you. Again, we've got this really, really wrong-headed and and warped perspective that God is our life coach that's here to help us accomplish all of our greatest hopes and dreams. That's nothing but just social media fantasy and spin, cheap cereal box theology that isn't rooted anywhere in Scripture. The fact is, he's not he's not sitting in heaven to help you accomplish your purpose. You're sitting here on earth to help him accomplish his purpose. And as such, it's going to take obedience. You're going to have to put yourself in the place of a servant and be willing to serve the Lord and do as he instructs. You could imagine what would have happened had they been unwilling to serve. A lot of people would have went hungry that day. And somebody's got to serve. We say we're servants then why are we offended when we must serve? We say we're the servants of the Lord. We all say that, don't we? We're the servants of the Lord. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my Master. I'm His servant. I'm His disciple. I'm His bond slave. And then why would we think it out of keeping when we'd be called on to serve? Now, the fact is, it's going to take our service, our compliance. And notice finally verse 42 with me. I like this. My life verse, and they did all eat. And we're filled. Amen. I like that verse. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. It's a real simple thought, but let me just state it in closing. Won't you notice how they succeeded? The day was won. The miracle was done. The people were fed. The testimony shone forth. I mean, say it a million ways, but what it amounts to is this day that began as dismal, discouraging and disheartening as anyone could have ever imagined ends with one of the greatest miracles of the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior. And it didn't come from people that had perfect attitudes all the time. It didn't come from people that uh, had, uh, you know, were operating on a full night's sleep, and it didn't come from people that were operating on a full belly or a right spirit or attitude or disposition or were refreshed, recharged, and reinvigorated. But it took from a bunch of overwhelmed, overrun, overcome, stretched thin, stressed out people Amen. who were just simply willing to serve the Lord, even in that condition. We say, well, preacher, doesn't he deserve my best? He deserves your all. Best is a funny statement. (laughs) Best is a relative concept. I mean, hey, listen, if my best is still brokenness, I ought to give him my brokenness because that's my best. Giving him only your best doesn't mean checking out and only checking in when you feel like it. Giving him your best means giving him your all no matter what condition you find yourself in. And you know, God can do anything if we'll just give him our best, if we'll give him our all. You've probably found yourself in in this situation. Sometimes I read the Bible and I see my face in it. And when I read this passage of Scripture, I can see my 
face in it. I can see my receding hairline, the bags under my eyes, amen. And I can see the same weaknesses and and shortcomings and failures in my life that existed in these lives as well. And I'm encouraged and reminded that I don't have to be perfect and I don't even have to be great and I don't have to be awesome for God to use me. But I do have to be honest. I do have to be usable, willing. I have to be surrendered to him. I have to be obedient to him. And if I'll do all those things, God can use me, even if I'm not in as good a shape as I wish I was in. As long as I'm surrendering to him my best, God can do great things through it. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. Let me give you an opportunity to come talk to the Lord tonight. I don't know what God may have spoken to you about, but I can tell you this. I found myself in their in their place a lot. And I and I've never done done even the tenth of what they've done. But I just mean in my feebleness and my weakness, in my insufficiency and adequacy, I found myself where they're at. And I can report to you in my life the times I've been willing to be used of God, He's used me. The times I've been obedient to the Lord, He's used me. And I believe He can use you tonight as well. If we'll just surrender our best and our all to Him, He'll use us. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.